Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox. Thank you for joining us again where we are centering the marginalized in Mormonism. How you doing, Brother Knox? Great. Welcome back. I just uh, spoke at a baptism this morning, and it went really well, and I was very honored to speak. And it, uh, yeah, it was great. It was a, a good week. A lot of people loved my thoughts. So That's I'm great. Very fortunate to be in a ward that, that encourages and nurtures individuals. Was this in your ward that this baptism was in my happened? ward? Yes. So why were people? I don't know. Why were people so shocked that you did a good job speaking? You know what I'm saying? Or so <laughs> impressed by? Um, I'm just like, if I was in your ward, I'd be like, that's just Derek. Like we get this every <laughs> Sunday. I'm not gonna be impressed by Derek oh. speaking at a baptism. Well, I don't know. I think it's just because I presented something that I had never presented before. So <laughs> <laughs> Derek is very proud of himself. So like I taught something, I taught a lot of stuff that I'd never taught before. So, mm. so that's, uh, yeah, well that was good. So I, it was such a special, such a special moment to share. Yeah. How about your week? Um, week has been good for the most part. There is, um, I mean, it's December now and it's caroling season. So I am super busy just gearing up for, Every weekend in December, I'll be doing Carol somewhere. Like I got a gig right after we're done today. I got a gig tomorrow. And dude, t- check 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 this out right quick. Check this out right quick. Yeah. So sometimes when I go caroling, our clients will request us to be dressed up in Victorian garb. So you know, cravats and mm-hmm. steampunk vests and top hats, the whole nine. I'm just like. I'm never comfortable with it. You know what I'm saying? Because just I know exactly where I would have been in the mid 1850s. So this idea that I'm going to be showing up in Victorian garb <laughs> and that this is going to be any degree believable. Also trying to get a top hat over this. You know what I'm saying? Just wow. I have to fight to get a top <laughs> hat over my hair. Like last year I was sporting like a longer frohawk. It was near impossible to get anything over my head. Uh-huh. And now I got to fit these locks in. I'm just not looking forward to it, man. Like. The Christmas season, it's cold. I'm going to be outside, going to be singing a bunch of Christmas hymns. I mean, that part's joyful, you know what I'm saying? But I I suppose just the hustle of getting Christmas caroling gigs, like I really respect my band leader for what she's doing and uh, getting us these gigs and everything like that. Like it's part of the reason I have income during this month. Mm -hmm. Um, But also it's just, I don't don't know, man. It's just mad busy. It kills my voice. I really hope I have a voice by the time the end of, you know, December comes. By the time the actual Christmas, Christmas day comes. comes. Yeah. yeah. And also, I renewed my baptism, or not my baptismal covenants. I did that, but I renewed my temple recommend this week. Yeah. Yeah. And it took a while. It took took a really long time. Usually these things are about 15 minutes tops. My interview was an hour long. You know why it was long, Derek? Because, uh, yeah, why was it long? Question seven is why it was long. It was question seven. And for those of y'all who ain't privy to question seven, I'm just going to read it here. It says, do you support or promote any teachings, practices, or doctrine Contrary to those of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Obviously, off, off the rip, I, gotta, I have to say yes, because though I don't believe certain policies come from our doctrine, there are active teachings and practices of the church that I do support and promote, and I have to address that. Now, I thought, by being honest in that way, 
the member of the stake presidency was in essence going to parse that just a little bit and then rephrase the question in such a way that I would be able to answer the, you know, the right way to. Yeah. Didn't happen though. That is not what happened at all. Like we had a nice long discussion about what my issues were or why I felt like I couldn't answer that question with a no. Mm -hmm. And then we just kind of talked about, like the the conversation basically circled around him saying, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater and me saying, I would never do such a thing. Like that was the gist of the entire conversation. And even though he ultimately found a way to phrase the question that allowed me to respond in a positive way, my just general takeaway from the whole interview was that if I had to do all of this just to get a temple recommend, perhaps the question still needs to change because I don't feel like me disagreeing with the brethren or me not sustaining or not, not, not sustaining, but me not embracing every single policy that the brethren come out with ought to preclude me from entering the house of the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't feel like me supporting or promoting something that goes against a policy that I've not received a witness of. And further a policy that I just do not think came from God would be in any way problematic. So, I, I don't know. It's uh, I, I, I do appreciate the change that they did make to question seven from what it was before. I do think question seven as it stands now is an improvement on the old one. But my interview shouldn't have taken an hour. You know what I'm saying? I really, I, I, I know in my heart of hearts that I'm worthy to be in the temple. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I had to say yes to question seven should not have precluded me from getting a temple recommend. I did get one at the end of the day, pretty much because I told him to give me one. But yeah. at the same time, I'm just like, it shouldn't have taken all of this. And there are some people that are not as lucky as I am. You know what I'm saying? Like just mm-hmm. this week, we heard from a listener whose bishop is denying her a temple recommend basically because he feels like her answer to question seven would not be satisfactory, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, it's that kind of thing worries me. I'm I'm lucky, but some are not as lucky. And I, I'm not entirely sure what to do about that, but I do need there to be I would like there to be a provision made for people who do not embrace every single policy and who don't and who even support or promote ideas that are not necessarily in line with what the brethren teach, but are nonetheless here for the long haul. I, I don't know if that's making any sense. It's certainly not the yeah. most articulate way to put it. But because of where I stand on certain issues and the big one that we discussed during the interview was the question of where LGBTQ folks fit in in the church and in the plan of salvation, I feel like some ex- some exception needs to be made there or some clarification needs to be made there about mm-hmm. what it means mm-hmm. to support or promote teachings that are not necessarily in line with what the church puts out. Well, the, the funny thing is, if he's going to take that stance what he should say well is well here's here's my plan like here's how i think lgbt did he even pretend to to come up with a with a counter proposal of what he thinks uh should should happen to my people uh uh-huh. no see right right it's because i think they they know that their position is is imperfect and incomplete they know that their knowledge is incomplete if they didn't think it if they thought otherwise they would proudly say oh here's our plan they would be like elizabeth warren and her ten thousand plans right <laughs> she knows like she's she's got this attitude of like 
Oh, I've got a plan for that. There's a plan for everything. And and but they actually don't have a plan for us. Mm-hmm. And they admit it. And they're like, "Well, too bad." That's kind right. of what they do. That that is what it is. Yeah. It's too bad, and just deal with it. And if you say anything contrary to that, or something that challenges that, then you're a problem. Like yeah. that's basically what question seven is saying to people that think otherwise. Yeah. So if you're gonna, if you're going to. Uh, that's my view is if, if you're, if you're going to have a problem with people criticizing certain directions or tendencies or biases in the church, you should come up with a response to that and say, here's how I'm going to meet your needs. And, and at least I have, but, but they're not even doing that. Mm-hmm. Not even doing that and alienating people in the process. Like I don't want to not be able to go into the temple. I work in the temple currently. I don't want to not be able to fulfill my obligations because of where I stand on question seven. You know what I'm saying? That's mm-hmm. a very, mm-hmm. I just don't feel like that's a very good reason for me to stay out of the temple when I feel like there are so many better reasons or worse reasons, depending on how you look at it, to not go into the temple or to not let somebody in the temple. And I don't really embody any of that. You know, I feel like my place is in the temple. I feel like the Lord wants me in the temple and I want to help in the temple. Like, I, I, I feel like where my heart is and where my desires are to help in this work of bringing salvation to all of mankind and to those who have passed on beyond the veil, I, f- I belong there, you know? Yeah. And that it took me an hour to convince a member of the stake presidency that I belong there was a little disheartening. But ultimately, I got my temple recommend. I'm happy. All is right with the world, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was, that was my week. Getting that temple recommend. Now, in in the ways of in the ways of news, quite a bit has happened. We're only going to focus on a few things. Uh, let's start with the easy stuff. First of all, was the uh, statement on the refugees that the church released just a few days ago? Did you get a chance to read that, Derek? I did. Yes. How how'd you feel about? Well, how'd you feel about the statement? And tell me how you felt about the wording of it too. Well, one of my first thoughts was, yeah, this. The whole point of the church is to be a moral witness to the world. And yeah. people say, well, ooh, you're backwards on all these. And here we're actually ahead of our culture. Mm. There's so many people that, who are xenophobic in our country and in the Republican Party. And um, I think Latter-day Saints who are Republicans can definitely be a moral witness in this case. Definitely. Right? Definitely. And um, now the wording may not have gone as far as you know, if the Lord had said it himself, you know, when the Lord says stuff, it's really radical and subversive and then people want to throw him off a cliff, like yeah. literally, right? <laughs> this was very measured and polite and it's not the way that the Savior would have said it, right? But mm-hmm. but it definitely is trying to be respectable. Yeah. And so that's that is what it is. That's that's the that's the, how the game works. So yeah. that's how it is. Um but I I'm glad that they, they made the statement. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Certainly. I actually noticed that and that was the word I used when I first uh, read the statement. It's very respectable, very measured, and very like it's a very safe statement. Mm-hmm. If I if I could say that, you know, I it it affirms the values of the church. It affirms the teachings of Christ to respect and care for the stranger, while also affirming our legal system, affirming our laws, which are less than perfect. You know, it said that little line in there about helping out in legal and appropriate ways. Right, and as soon as I read that, I was like, this is where people who espouse our current immigration laws are going to be like, see, it said legal. So, you know, people, we can allow them in, but they, it's got to be in a legal way, 
without really acknowledging that there's a problem with the way our laws are right. written when it comes to when it comes to immigration. Our laws are very strict and they're very they're, they're not very permissive. So in that regard, I wasn't too impressed by the statement, but nonetheless, I am like you, very glad that the church yeah. made the statement because it's a good reminder of where we stand on these issues, and mm-hmm. it's a necessary reminder of, you know, part of the radical theology of Christ, which was taking care of the stranger. Yeah, I'm reminded of two things. One is, I wasn't it MLK who said, I want to remind you that everything Hitler did was legal and everything the resistance did was illegal at that time in Germany? I've heard the quote. I do not know who it's attributed to, but I do know the quote. Yeah. And then the other thing is, it reminded me of, I'm sure there's going to be people, right-wingers in the church, who were like, oh, I don't like that statement. They made a mistake this week, you know? (laughs) You know? Yeah. That's when they they bring out the line, oh, our leaders aren't perfect, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funny enough, that actually came up in my baptismal interview as well, like with regard to where people are at on certain sides of certain issues. Yeah. And well, that's probably going to come up again when we discuss this uh, next piece of news. But was there anything else striking about that uh, statement that the church came out with? Yeah, I would like to see more statements like that. I mean, mm. uh, you know, we're putting our, you know, putting our values to work for public good and, and social change. All right. So let's uh, go ahead and move to the other story, other big story this week. It actually takes place in the state of Utah, and it's with regard to the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, basically the story here is that the state of Utah is looking to be the 39th state to, to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. The LDS Church came out against it, maintaining a course it has been maintaining for more or less 40 years at least that's the that's the last document i found that was presenting arguments against the equal rights amendment now even though the church has declared many times that it supports equal rights for for uh for women it doesn't believe that the equal rights amendment is going to be a proper vehicle to that end that seems to be what the church's biggest issue with the era is now they have presented some reasons, and they all seem to center around their position on abortion or what they feel like those laws are going to turn into if the Equal Rights Amendment gets passed. There seems to be issues surrounding women getting drafted in the military if this amendment passes, and there also seems to be some concern around, uh, I, I don't know, custody of children I saw was one of them. And, and the definition of sex, that was another big one. Now, before yeah. 2015, a big concern was uh, gay marriage. Right. Like if the Equal Rights Amendment was going to be passed, what would that mean for gay marriage? That was like one of the church's biggest concerns, but obviously that ship has since sailed. So, yeah, I, I did my best to read up on the arguments of both sides, and I was mostly, I, I, I don't know, this feels like not a big not as big of a deal as the church is making it up to be perhaps i'm reading this wrong but i don't think that there's so much wrong or so much vague right. about the equal rights amendment that the church has to step in to say that they oppose it were you able to be aware of anything else that may have caused the church to take such a strong stance on this I don't know i don't obviously i am in support of the equal rights amendment right, and yeah. i when i 
I can't even understand the opposition. And when I look at the opposition, it reminds me of stuff that I've seen that looks back during the, the whole women's suffrage movement. If you look at the arguments from the other side of the women's suffrage movement, uh-huh. it's very similar. It's like, oh, we don't need to give women the vote because they've got this other way. You know, they can, you know, share their vote with their husband and their husband, should, right. you know, vote for them. And there's this other thing for them. And, and it would be bad for women to have the, like, it's all the same things recycled over and over again. Yeah. It's just, to me, something basic. And, and they're not going to come out and say, oh, well, we we hate women and we think they should be second class and inferior. They're n- of course, they're not going to say it. They're going to s- find some way of couching it in 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 what I would call benevolent sexism. Like, yeah. oh, we're going to take care of the women and we're going to we're going to put them on this pedestal. And of course, a pedestal can be a prison if you if you've really narrowly defined where people people have to be in order to stay on that pedestal. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'm thinking in my head is a lot of the reasons against the ERA actually backfire to show the problem with patriarchy. Yeah. Because concerns around, um, for example, the military. So it's this it's the patriarchy is what says, well, men have the, the protector and defender role and therefore men are responsible for the defense of the country and the defense of the home. And therefore men are expendable and disposable so we can send them off to war but mm-hmm. women are too delicate or too whatever to, to, to go off to war now the, the bigger problem is that war is an evil itself right yeah, yeah. i would be against conscription completely and mm-hmm. i don't think we should have it for either gender see <laughs> but um but they're 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 saying well their their issue around this differential thing that seems to uh in a way benefit women by exempting them from the draft actually shows the rottenness of patriarchy that's underscoring this whole foundation of why it's Mm. set up that way to begin with. Mm. And it's the same thing with issues around child custody. Apparently there, there can be a differential for mothers versus fathers in that courts may be more likely to give uh, custody to the mothers, which you would Mm -hmm. think, Oh, that's good for women. But there's this patriarchal, Underlay to all that set says well women are designed to be the nurturers and the caretakers and they're designed to have this very limited role and men have this other role so it's all of these gender roles and all these other assumptions that lead to it being bad for both men and women mm-hmm. and patriarchy is bad for everyone it puts yeah. men in danger yeah. of you know not having custody or being shipped off to war and the solution shouldn't be oh well we're just gonna not deal with the problem but actually deal with those problems and then the equal rights amendment will have no um no uh, secondary effects that are that are bad mm-hmm. right there will be no problems no unintended consequences to the ERA if you fix all these other things that we should have fixed a long time ago right. now i should say that i'm speaking as a man right and there's going to be something <laughs> that i say that's going to be you know not out of the experience of someone who lives with with those consequences to these decisions. So mm-hmm. I just want to name that mm-hmm. and think of ways that we can uplift the, the voices of women on this. Yeah, definitely. And this is definitely a way, at least from what I understand, primarily to guarantee the rights that we've already said we were going to give to women. You know what I'm saying? That seems to be the whole point of the Equal Rights Amendment. And in that same vein that you just said, Derek, 
I really like there there's there's a great piece on the Salt Lake Tribune by Michelle Quist that I definitely recommend everybody read. I think it encapsulates a lot of what you just said, Derek, very well. And I can put a link to that in the show notes because it's it's really well done and it, it acknowledges these things very well. But um, I, I got nothing to add to what you said, Derek, and uh, I would really like just to take that opportunity to uplift the great female voices who've already spoke on this issue and obviously thought about it more than we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would like to uplift, for example, Emmeline Wells in, uh, in, the, in the suffrage. You know, Latter-day Saints, especially the women, were a leader in the suffrage movement in this country. And I think if there's any, any church in this country that should be unambiguously on the side of equality of gender, it should be us because should we be have us. in our, literally in our Book of Mormon that we try to shove in every door we can, it says all are alike unto God. Mm-hmm. And in that context, it's specifically male and female yep. are alike unto God. Yep. And if, if that's true, Male and female should be alike unto the United States Constitution. We should have no problem with that. And all genders should be uh, alike unto God. Yeah. Now, if you're not already familiar, Light the World is an initiative, a social media initiative that the church has been doing for a few years. I mean, for however long social media has been around, it's been a campaign that they've been doing. And every holiday season, we use hashtag Light the World to encourage things like well, primarily acts of kindness and acts of service. Not an awful thing to do at face value, you know. Can right. Not an awful, not awful thing to do. And if people want to participate, that more power to them. Yeah, Jesus said, "Let your, you know, let your light shine." You yeah, know? definitely. Let you know your good deeds be seen. So, mm-hmm. but there's there's a big butt here, yeah. and we got to acknowledge the big <laughs> butt in the room. So. First thing, most obvious thing to me, is consider the source of where this is coming from. This is coming from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We encourage every holiday season acts of kindness and service during the Christmas season. While all year long, I feel like we deny the same. We deny personhood to members of the LGBTQ community. Like That is just one example or one thing to consider or at least one thing I would like us to acknowledge in the midst of all this. But I really like what Lindsay Hanson Park had, Park had to say about this. She likened it to a rotten cake that was covered in icing. And I was like, I mean, that's, that is what it is. That's kind of what it feels like. And to a lot of people who have been a part of the church for a while or who have left the church after being a part of it for a while, you know, this whole Light the World campaign doesn't seem to be fooling anybody. We talk about being kind and being of service to other people while this is still happening within the walls of our church, the light, the world campaign just seems disingenuous, kind of mm-hmm, fake. It feels mm-hmm. like a commercial. It just doesn't feel right. very yeah, real, not authentic, not authentic at all. And oh. this is my primary issue with the campaign. Again, if people want to use the hashtag like the world, I got nothing against that, but I do certainly ask for empathy to people who do respond in a hostile manner toward it because I feel like this is where they're coming from. They see an organization that is only advocating for this kindness or this particular campaign during the Christmas season while during the rest of the year, we are constantly the center of controversy when it comes to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And still, as you said earlier, Derek, we still don't have any answers. We still haven't proposed any solutions or a way for members of that community to sit at the table with the rest of us. 
Yeah, to me, it like there's part of parts of it that's good if it reminds you to do stuff good if it right, gives you a structure right. like we need structure to do some of these things yes sir that even if we have all the right intentions you need a framework that actually gets you out and does them yes, right sir. so that's good yes, sir. but the problem is people will see this as a marketing thing like yeah. we're just trying to get a commercial for the church mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. even for jesus but a commercial for the church, for the church of trying yes. to get an excuse of like oh this is some you know artificial missionary thing that we're just gonna try to make people and I don't think the rest of the, like Lindsay Hansen Park said, I don't think the rest of the world is really impressed by this. They can no. see through it. Right. And the other thing is marketing. Let me just lift this up, that Jesus was the world's worst marketer. <laughs> right? If you <laughs> Say look more. At, look at what happened. You know, he got a few thousand people to follow him, but they, all of them ran away. Mm. You know, all of them, even at the, even at the, in the garden, his disciples slept and they all ran away. They all denied him or gave up on him or, you know, with the exception of some of the women, they actually mm-hmm. followed him to the cross. Yeah. But the yeah. male disciples, yeah. so on one level, on a worldly level, Jesus was the world, was the worst at marketing, which with an opinion like this, it means I will never get into a business school, <laughs> uh, which is fine with me. <laughs> Hello, all my business school friends. Mm. Um, Fine with me, but look, we we don't have to be good at marketing. We have to be good at being Christ-like. Mm. And in the end, that's actually what, what got now literally billions of people following Christ. Yes, is sir. The character, the integrity of Christ, going to the cross, denying his privilege, telling a story that changes the world is what Jesus did. And so on, a, on an earthly level, he failed his marketing 101, whatever, but in the end, you got real results and authenticity, and I think that's what this church needs. It needs to be completely incorporated into the way we live our lives and our character and not just a Facebook little profile thingy that you can paste on your wall. Right. You got any other thoughts about the Light the World campaign before we move on? No, but uh, this is a good time to be respectful of other religions, right? Certainly. Um, that's where we can show our characters. How do we treat people of other religions and none mm-hmm. at this time? We should not be Christian supremacists and say we <laughs> were the center and and uh, those who are sp- celebrating Hanukkah, which is not at all the equivalent of Christmas. It's just a coincidence. Right, right. Um, it's not the Jewish Christmas. It doesn't have anything to do with Christmas mm-hmm. um, or winter solstice or other other celebrations at this time of year. We should remember we're not the only ones here, and we need to be right. respectful and courteous and even uh, somewhat envious of these other traditions and, and have mm-hmm. a great nothing but positive feelings for them. Yeah, definitely. All right. On that note, we are going to move on to the Come Follow Me. Before we do, though, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Now, we are going into the Come Follow Me, and we just started the book of Revelations. Yay. Or sorry, the book of Revelation. I always want to put that S on there because of Kirk Franklin, but it's just book of Revelation. And this is going to be chapters 1 through 11, it looks like. So there is, I I don't know 
what we want to start with first. I feel like my stuff is uh, small peanuts, so I'd probably like to start with that before we get to your stuff, Derek. Okay. Okay. So first thing I want to talk about is the doctrine of Balaam. I'm, I'm saying that right, yeah? Yeah. I keep... Balaam. I always say like Balaam or something in my head, but it, it, it takes so much effort to say this pro- properly. Now, anyway, the doctrine of Balaam. This is uh, brought up in Revelation 2.14. Now, Balaam, a prophet of Mesopotamia, was willing to use his God-given talents for illicit purposes. And this is kind of the foundational part of the doctrine of Balaam. Even though he, he knew, um, there's another one I have trouble pronouncing. Is it Balak? Balak? Yeah, I I think I've heard it a number of different ways. All right, I'm just gonna yeah. I'm just gonna go Balak to be yeah, consistent. That's, that's how I. All right, would cool. Do it. So even though he knew Balak was God's enemy, he tried to sell his prophetic gifts to to help him, and when that didn't work, Balaam counseled Balak on the most effective way to weaken Israel, which was to uh, through seduction. He used uh, Moabite and Midianite women to s- basically. Uh, seduce the Israelites into sexual relationships and to, uh, to to pagan rituals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, comment on that? No. All right, cool. But uh, anyway, the, the Israelites who participated uh, brought God's judgment upon them. And yeah, it was, it was a mess. That was basically the mess that Balaam got the people of Israel into. So according to, uh, I, there was a cross-reference here to uh, 2 Peter 2.15. So according to that, Balaam's way is a choice to promote falsehood for financial reasons. And there's also a cross-reference to Jude chapter 1, verse 11, uh, where they tell us that Balaam's error was his willingness to accommodate pagan beliefs out of a desire for financial gain, out of greed, basically. And then also in Jude 1, 4, it refers to the sin of those turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So one trait of false teachers in the church is that they attempt to turn Christian liberty into a freedom to be promiscuous. And ultimately what I, what I got when I put these ideas together was that the doctrine of Balaam includes the practice of preaching for riches and fame, usually preachings counter to the divine will and, and a willingness to, uh, tolerate other beliefs or less holy beliefs, pagan beliefs out of greed, depending on how you look at that. The idea that you can be fully cooperative with the world while being God's spokesman or being a disciple of Christ. That is kind of where I settled on this whole, what is the doctrine of Balaam thing? It enables sinful, sinful behaviors for personal gain. That, that That's kind of what I got all out of that. And mm-hmm. I started thinking about the ways that we can kind of follow that doctrine today, because there's definitely been times where I've tried to, you know, make things work in the world while also trying to be a disciple of Christ. Or I've seen things on TV of people trying to preach God's word, but also do it for the sake of getting gain or do it in a way that manipulates it. That, man, that manipulates the word of God for the sake of ga- getting gain. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one one thing is is let me just back up and talk some a little bit about the historical context here. So, the, this was written to communities in Asia Minor, 
probably at the end of the first century under the emperor Domitian and um, Domitian was setting himself up to be God and uh, to be worshipped as a divine being and in contrast to this you've got uh, communities here navigating what does that look like in an empire that doesn't really like us and doesn't mm. have room for us and one of their temptations would be to assimilate to the surrounding things the food sacrifice to idols is ah. di directly mentioned here as one of Balaam's uh, problems which is interesting because Paul actually has a different opinion on food sacrifice styles he's like yeah eat it if it doesn't it doesn't cause a problem yeah there's idols don't even exist so this shows <laughs> you how this actually really is kind of how what what I would say to question number seven in the in the temple recommend interview is if you look at it apostles disagree with each other all the time yeah yeah they don't say it so much publicly anymore but just because you're an apostle doesn't mean that what you say, you know, plop down from heaven with this golden halo on it. Mm -hmm. it you got to work. You got to do some work. You got to do your homework and you have to do the work of the spirit to confirm all of those things. So, yeah, we should we should always take these things in, in context. And yes, the author, uh, you know, John here is, is saying is very much against food sacrifice to idols. Yeah. And Paul wasn't. Right. 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 So that's kind of uh, kind of what's going on here. Thank you for clarifying. Need to remember to get that historical context before we begin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thank you for clarifying that. Uh, any other thoughts on that? Um, one other thing to notice is that the scholarly literature on Revelation has been changing over the past generation. Originally, it looked like Revelation was written to people who were enduring active persecution and harassment and perhaps even dying and being <laughs> martyred for their for their faith and it has an a, incredibly anti-roman program to the whole book of revelation and that's right. very clear that's undisputed right yeah. everyone sees you know babylon as rome the beast is rome. all these things are rome all the bad people are but scholarship has been changing and now th it has shifted to this idea of that and the, and the evidence behind this is they looked and there actually isn't a lot of evidence of that type of organized massive persecution of Christians in Asia Minor. I see. Obviously, if they are causing trouble, then there would be a pushback. But it wasn't an aggressive anti-Christian program at the time. There's no evidence of that. And there's also this idea of if everyone is being if everyone is being persecuted so hard, they would all know that Rome is bad. Yeah, the author here wouldn't have to argue that Rome is bad, and he mm -hmm. really goes to through so many different symbols and metaphors and images to sh to try to persuade people that look, Rome is bad. Hmm. I don't know, man. Like, and this is th this is why I say I don't know because I look at the examples of the doctrine of Balaam being practiced today, mm -hmm. and I see a lot of people following it. Like, for example, you see it in uh, the hyper-conservative Christian rights, you know what I'm saying? And you see their political leaders saying things in the name of Christ for the sake of popularity with their fan bases that, and I'm just like, why do these, on, on the one hand, you're right, Derek, why does that need to be said? Why do people need to be convinced that this is not the right way? Because this is not what Christ was about at all. But at the same time, so many people are following this rhetoric. So many people are following this oppressive rhetoric in the name of Christ for whatever reason, 
So like yeah, and I think that's exactly why I said the scholarly literature has been changing. Is okay that if they were under um, extreme persecution, it would be obvious that Rome is the bad guys. It would be obvious. It but should here, be obvious. What 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 John is addressing isn't that type of persecution, but he's saying, look, I want to warn you about this coming evil because you're currently cozying up to Rome. You're currently uh-huh. trying to assimilate and thrive in this Roman world, which is passing away. And so I think that's that's kind of an, a really more powerful uh, application of what he's doing here. He's saying, look, no, Rome is evil. Like, don't get too close to it. Don't. And I think that is, is exactly relevant to what's happening today is people okay. are getting too close to empire and thinking that that uh, and not actually knowing the danger. Yeah. Big I time. Think that that's kind of what's going on here. And he's warning, warning these people. Mm okay that is a great way to look at that i never i never considered that that's going to make more sense of uh, this reading about babylon that's going to be coming up mm-hmm. next mm-hmm. week so yeah. definitely stay tuned for that because now i'm going to have a lot more to say about babylon but uh yeah does that uh, does that transition well into anything you got to say because i'm about to move to revelation three if not yeah uh yeah let's go on to revelation three okay cool so i learned some new things about Oh, gosh. I really need to start looking up how to pronounce these. Laodicea? Is this the... Yeah, Laodicea. Laodicea? No, Laodicea. 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 All right, thank you. So I learned some things about Laodicea because there's a a verse or a set of verses in Revelation 3 that always hit me, but this hit hit me different enough that I wanted to look it up just to make sure I was reading it correctly because, again, a listener reached out to uh, to our one of our pages this week, and she lamented that she wished there was more space for people who are kind of in the in between phase, or people that sit in the in between area when it comes to their faith. Now, for to put that into context, let me just read the relevant verses. We've heard these before. This is often quoted in Christianity. This is verse fifteen and sixteen. So the Lord is saying, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Oftentimes when we read this verse, we are reading this passage as the Lord defining the spectrum as cold being a straight up non-believer and hot being, you know, on fire for Christ or however Mm. you want to word that. And then we read lukewarm as being those people who are kind of like fair weather Christians. You know what I'm saying? Uh, You probably already know where I'm going with this. No, the hot water is good and the cold water is good. Both are good. Thank you, Derek. That's actually where I wanted to go because this is the whole thing. Hot water serves a purpose. You know what I'm saying? Hot water you, you can clean yourself with it. You can bathe with it. You can have some hot cocoa or some tea with it. Cold water is refreshing after yeah. a workout. It's refreshing on a hot day. You can do a lot of things with cold water. Lukewarm water. What can you do with lukewarm water, Derek? What do you do with lukewarm water? Spit it out. Exactly. <laughs> lukewarm water is gross. It's disgusting. You can't do anything with it. Like, have you ever taken a sip of hot chocolate when it becomes lukewarm? Ooh. It's the worst. And you know, you're right, because chocolate milk is good, cold, yes. and mm-hmm. hot chocolate is but and it's the same, yeah. Why exactly. would you want it? Why would you want it? I remember, like, this happened just this week. I got out of the gym, and uh, I left, um, what happened? 
I left my water out. I didn't have it in the fridge. And, um, you know, this was a while back, actually. Let me, this is a better example because this was in the summer. I left a bottle of water in my car. And after my workout, I came out. I tried to drink the water that I left in my car. The water was all lukewarm. It didn't do anything for me after the workout. It, it was disgusting. It was the worst. So, yeah. like, now this is where I want to put it in the context of why the Lord is saying this to Laodice- Laod- Laodicea. 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 Thank you. Yeah. So apparently Laodicea knew something about lukewarm water. They had exactly. A, they had a system where they received hot water from a hot spring like five miles away yeah. through wooden pipes. Now, the problem that presented is that by the time the hot water arrived by wooden pipes five miles away, the water was lukewarm. By that point, it was useless. Yeah. Like nobody wanted to use it. So there is something to be gathered from what the Lord is saying when he says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Hot and cold, as you said, Derek, they're both good. They both serve a purpose. They're not the same at all, but they're both good and serve different functions. Now, why the Lord was saying he was going to spew out the lukewarm water is not because they were fair-weather fans of Christ. It's because they were straight-up non-believers. The Lord had no use for them. The Lord is not saying that there's a problem with the fair-weather Christian. He's saying there's something wrong with the straight-up non-believer. He's saying there's something wrong with the person who probably leads both sacrament mm-hmm. meeting or leads elders quorum yeah. and is just not present at all yeah, someone in Christ. someone who compromises. Yes, someone who compromises. Because yeah. they're like, oh, I'm trying to be hot water, or I am hot water. I did come from the spring, but I don't feel the function of hot water at all. I'm disgusting, you know? That is what the Lord is condemning here. He's not condemning people who are between hot and cold because they are 50-50. He's condemning them because they serve no purpose, because there's nothing good yeah. about them. And I just wanted to put that out there, especially because a lot of our listeners are less conventional in terms of their belief, but they are defi- but they are no less believers of Christ and no less faithful in their practice of our faith. And I feel like the Lord is validating us here by saying... You know, there's a place for you for being different. You don't have to be hot or on fire. You can be cold. Both are good. Both are needed. Yeah. You know, we can't live in a world with just mm-hmm. hot water or just cold water. Both are needed. What the Lord doesn't want is people who pretend to be hot or come from the source of the hotness and then don't ultimately perform the function of hotness. That what That is what the Lord has a problem with. Yeah. That gets into sort of historically there have been four interpretive strategies are basically four approaches to interpreting revelation because revelation is one of the most difficult books to interpret and and so hard christian scholars for two thousand years have had basically four different approaches one is the preterist approach which basically says everything that's in the book of revelation is about what happened in the first century like Mm -hmm. all that the destruction of the temple all this other stuff all that has to do with the first century then there's another, uh, the historicist, which basically says all of Revelation can be mapped on this 2,000-year history from the coming of Christ, uh, the first coming of Christ to the second of com- coming of Christ. All of that, we will gradually go through all of what's in Revelation mm-hmm. in, in sequence. Yeah. Then there's another, the futurist, that says all this stuff is in the future, that all of it is just really immediately before the second coming of Christ. This is all going on and then the fourth view is the idealist version which says you're not actually mapping this to the real world but it's 
with with symbols and imagery you're talking about the cosmic struggle for good and uh, of good and evil in these really vivid ways mm. but it's not actually talking about events any type of historical events either in the past or the future okay and my approach is actually to say there's something significant significantly flawed with all four of those <laughs> So the best way is to kind of combine all of them, the best parts of all of them. All right. You know, the, the, the futurist uh, has a problem that it actually isn't relevant to us and it isn't relevant to people in the first century. Same thing with the, the preterist approach. If you say it all has to do with the first century, it actually doesn't fit because the stuff, we didn't have victory. We didn't have the coming of, of the kingdom in the first century. We didn't have all this stuff. And the historicist view is like, well, what would this mean to people in the first? Why would John write this to them? It it literally had meaning to them, or else he wouldn't have written it specifically to those communities. Why? And so all of these, if you kind of put them all together, at least put the strengths of them together and not the flaws, that's kind of this eclectic view is my approach. Okay. And to have some humility about we don't know exactly how this maps onto stuff, but there's. But the the main, if to sum it up in two words, is God wins. Yeah, yeah. That's the main takeaway of the book of Revelation. Yeah. And this gets into sort of the context here of this must have meant something to the Laodiceans because they had hot water uh, coming from their hot springs in Hierapolis and they had cold water coming from Colossae. And so they had, they had a vivid knowledge of these things that made sense and uh, was relevant to them. Yeah, we're looking. We're reading over the shoulder of these original readers. Yeah, definitely. Let's see other things to say. I should say that one of the it depends on what question people think that like biblical studies is objective in some sense. You're trying to, but in some ways, the questions you ask of the text completely frame what you're doing. If you were asking of this question, this this text, like. What's going to happen in the year 2000? What's going to happen? And, you know, how's this going to happen? That's one thing. But if you're asking the question of, like, how do I worship God? The texts in the book of Revelation can really give you a passionate sense of white-hot worship of God. Mm. There's so many songs and so many hymns, and, and which doesn't even, doesn't, isn't at all the same purpose of, like, knowing the time scale of all these things and what's going to happen, you know, all these end of the earth people like that's mm -hmm. a completely different question. Yeah. And there's yeah. so much content um, that has richly blessed the Christian community. Many hymns, many songs, even uh, significant parts of Handel's Messiah come from the text in Revelation. And I'll just put Kirk Franklin in there again, like the revolution, the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Am I supposed to know who that is? Yeah, Kirk Franklin, he's like this uh, big gospel singer. He's probably the most famous of the gospel artists. Okay. It's Kirk Franklin. Well, I'll have to de de All of his songs begin with something in the book of Revelations, I feel like. Like yeah. quotes a scripture and then sings a song about it. And that's that will get me to what I, I think chapters four and five are really great. You've got some very gr great heavenly worship uh, there, which I'm not going to go into. All right. But I'm going to skip to seven, and this is the, this is the uh, text about those who have come out of the Great Tribulation, those who have m been martyred, and um, I love how inclusive it is, it, it is from every nation, tribe, people, and language. 
um, worshiping God in white robes and holding these palm branches in their hands. And they're saying, you know, salvation or rescue would be another way of translating that belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And then there, you've got all these people singing, praising God, and then, um, and then, uh, and then it's revealed that these are those who came out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and whitened them in the blood of the Lamb, and they're and they. And it's there. It's just so beautiful, and I love the the concluding verse of chapter uh, seven. Seven. Uh, okay. Yeah, verse sixteen and seventeen. They will not be hungry or thirsty again. <laughs> this is the verse. Nor will the sun beat down upon them, nor any burning heat, because the Lamb, in the midst of the throne, will shepherd them, and He will lead them to a fountain of life-giving waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. <laughs> I think marginalized people, persecuted people, this actually does provide a sense of hope and a scaffold for their dignity in one of the most inopportune times. Yeah. And it's just the book of Revelation is so beautiful. There's some people that are going to, you know, read into it like, oh, there's Ronald Reagan's here and and, you know, Stalin's here and they'll, they'll try to map it too. But I'm realizing none of those mappings is going to really satisfy me hmm. but i think just looking at the concepts just really speaks to me gives me a sense of hope gives me a sense of uh of of beauty oh and i wanted to say something else in terms of beauty all right in the beginning of chapter seven you've got the 144,000 who are sealed right this is a word that a lot of latter-day saints want to narrow the meaning of it yeah. just means this one particular ordinance done in a certain way and even in terms of ordinances, there are two sealing ordinances. There's uh, the the sealing of spouses together, but then there's also the sealing of parent and child, mm -hmm. which is also a sealing. Not every sealing is a marriage. Right. There is literally room for other kinds of sealing other than marriage. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen with that? We we only know in part and prophesy in part. We see through a glass and darkly and dimly. Like there is possibilities for sealing the whole world of humans together. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to talk about what the sealing is because it says, um, so basically there are 120, uh, there are 12,000 from each tribe sealed for a total of 144,000. What's interesting about these 144,000 is that they're sealed and they're, they're basically the closest to God here in the entire book of Revelation. They are the... Uh, the crowning most glorified people in all of, of Revelation, and they're actually unmarried. Mm. If you look in Revelation 14, the 144,000, they're said to be um, virgins. They're unmarried. Interesting. Yeah, they're they're unmarried. Um, and so I'm like, look, here's here's a place for single people. Like, <laughs> hello, right? Parliament, heavenly parliament. Yeah, that's where you going? Yeah, so so that's, I think, very beautiful. And there's just so many things to talk about in the book of Revelation. Yeah. One of the things we can maybe get into next week is the uh, treatment of violence. Yeah. Because along with Acts, um, Revelation is, is the, the two of those are the most violent books in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And what do we do with that? Does it glorify violence? Does it say that violence is the solution? Like, is it about the violence that early Christians endured when in persecution? What does it say that it seems that God cleanses the earth through violence and kills off 
all these, right? What does that mean? And that's something that I'm, luckily I don't have to have all the answers to, but we mm-hmm. can talk about that next week. Yeah, man. But hopefully this should be a good, healthy introduction for people to start reading the book of Revelation with with, with responsibility and with a sense of relevance and impact and actually get something tangible for their own lives to take out, especially the sense of worship. There's a great sense of worship here that really comes through the amazing um, worship of Christ. Even mm. We don't typically talk about worshiping Christ or praying to Christ in our church, yeah. but it's here in the text. Mm-hmm. And my view is that that Heavenly Father, Christ, and the Holy Ghost are one enough that whatever you do to one, you're doing to all of them. They're one in love and purpose. You know, it all, it's all, it all counts, right? It all counts. <laughs> so that's kind of where I want to leave that for everyone. We can pick this up next week. That's a great idea, Derek. Thank you for sharing that. That's some, those are some great insights. I'm going to do a little more reading myself of this. I didn't, I mean, you put that, you, you, you breathe new intention into that scripture in Revelation 7 for me. That was the verse that Kirk Franklin actually quotes before his most famous song. Oh. So, uh, no coincidences, <laughs> Derek. No coincidences. <laughs> anyway, before we move on to the prayer roll, just wanted to let you guys know about one of the other great podcasts in the Dialogue Podcast Network called Gospel Tangents. Gospel Tangents explores Mormon history, science, and theology from the best experts in the field. They talk to witnesses of history, BYU professors, apostles, and hopefully the prophet presidents from the many different restoration branches and non-believers to cover a 360-degree view of Mormonism. Now, we are moving on to the prayer roll, and, okay, I am going to address and bring to the front of the congregation George Zimmerman. If you haven't heard, or if you don't know, just the brief history on this guy, this is, this is the guy who killed Trayvon Martin. He was acquitted of murder charges, ultimately. He also auctioned off his murder weapon for a quarter million dollars to a white supremacist and has gotten in trouble with the law at least three more times since killing Trayvon. It's about eight years ago, I believe. And this includes physical altercations as well as a stalking of a federal agent or private investigator, something like that. Now, fast forward to today. This same guy is now trying to sue the grieving parents of the child he killed and their lawyer for $100 million. Where do you find the unmitigated audacity to kill a child and then stay out of jail, beat the case, and then sue their family? Like, that is just an incredible thing to me. Now, his apparent grievance is that Somebody, a witness that was called in the case, again, which he beat, was apparently a fake witness. And, you know, I, I don't know. He, he alleges that a witness in the case was fake and brought up a, conco- a concocted story of some kind and was an imposter. So, again, it bears repeating. Zimmerman beat this case. He was acquitted. I, I don't know why he's still mad. Like, has the family not suffered enough? And was it not enough that you had your life outside of jail, even though you put yourself in a rather avoidable situation without a good reason? Like, how, how, how little must you value the life you took and the lives of those who grieve that you dare sue them later because you think 
you suspect that there was a fake witness in the case that you ultimately beat. I don't think George Zimmerman did this on his own. Like his lawyer is like a notorious uh, conspiracy theorist who even has a movie screening coming out called The Trayvon Hoax. He's authored many conspiracy theories before, so I'm I'm sure this guy is probably like the driving force behind George Zimmerman. But even still, I would have hoped that George Zimmerman would have known better. But, you know, he didn't. And now you combine this with all the other trouble that he's been in with the law. I don't know, man, just you, you can't but you can't help but wonder how this guy, this stain on America is still out and about. You know what I'm saying? He like he hasn't caught any fades. No one tried to kill this dude. He's just out here living his life. I, I, I don't know how he's doing it. But that's also kind of a lie, Derek. You know, like I've said it on the show before, but the primary reason that George Zimmerman is able to do all this and be out here. And the primary way reason that anybody still wants to have anything to do with this guy is because this is what America is. America has always been white supremacy, capitalism, and pretense. And we have a perfect amalgamation of all three of those things in this wow. single story. So white supremacy killed Trayvon Martin. Pretense made George Zimmerman believe that he was the victim. And capitalism is the whole reason he was able to profit off of all of this. Like, he's been profiting off of Trayvon Martin's death ever since he killed him. Like I said, selling the weapon, being able to uh, appear at all kinds of conventions, have speaking engagements. There's pictures of him at speaking engagements and conventions, signing packs of Skittles and charging money to do so. Like, this is who we are. Like, this is who America has always been. That's how George Zimmerman is out here doing all that. It's because this is who we are. Yeah. It's... It's awful. Yeah. So, I don't know. The best I got for this week is to pray for George Zimmerman's safety because really it's a miracle that he's hasn't caught a fade yet. It's a miracle that he's still alive, that no one's tried to catch his body. But, like, I'm going to pray for his safety. I'm going to pray that he catches some compassion. I'm going to pray that he beats this disease, which is white supremacy, pretense, and capitalism because, like, this is just a mess. This is I feel like this story embodies the worst of America. And it's just, it just made me yeah. sad, man. It's just making me sad. Yeah. Ah. All right. Uh, Derek, you got a prayer roll? Yeah. So I don't know all the details of this, but this just this past week, I heard this story about a father who found out or suspected that his son was gay okay. and decided that it would be a good idea to drop him off on the side of the road and abandon him. Because his son was gay. I'm like, and this didn't happen in some other country. It happened in Florida. Florida. Of course yeah. it happened in Florida. Florida. Yeah. Freaking Florida. Yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering, like, what? W there's just so many questions I have. Like, why does he think this would be a good idea? Why does he think that 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 solves anything? Like, how can you throw away a lifelong relationship with someone that you have basically vowed to say, I'm going to bring this person into the world and care for them and raise them up and invest all this time and money? And you just throw away that in a moment of, of well, pretense, right? Jeez. Thinking that you, yeah. So, and that's... And the other thing is, that's not going to solve the problem. You can't dump the kid on the side of the road, and that's going to make him straight. Yeah, he's still going to be gay, and you're still going to have this gay child that you just 
don't have any connection with. Uh-huh. I, I just don't understand why homophobia is so, I don't even know the word for it, is so sensible to people, right? It's a hell of a drug. It, <laughs> somehow it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, like what if I just like there's no analogy to homophobia. We like we try to analogize it to other things, but yeah. it's different. It's it would be like I found out my, that my kid has, uh, you know, is is left-handed, and so that that changes their whole life. And now I have to throw them out. I'm like, no, we wouldn't do that for any other equivalent thing. Yeah, like same gender love is exactly the same thing mm-hmm. as as the love that straight people have. Yeah. I'm like, it's not just an analogy. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And like people are making this, b- finding a completely artificial and arbitrary dividing line. And somehow that makes sense to them. I just, I just don't get how it's so sensible to people and why. And then I, this, then I, I don't know if you heard about the story. I think this was in Brazil where a mother decided to kill her son because he was gay and, mm-hmm. And she, uh, and she was caught for it. And she's like, "Well, he was gay, so I killed him." Like, who does that? And how right. is th- how is that how, how is that any different than having a straight son? It's just not. Mm-hmm. People make it a big deal. I mean, homophobia makes it a big deal. And I, and to some extent, even my own Western gay identity is built around homophobia. Like the whole coming out narrative presupposes homophobia and is right. built on homophobia. Like right. we would, I, there probably wouldn't be there. There wouldn't be a word for me uh-huh. and my people if it weren't for homophobia. It would just be so natural and normal and un- unimportant and unimpressive that people wouldn't even need to classify it. Right. 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 So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray for the pray for this father. I'm like, yeah. I mean, there's. And he probably thinks he failed as a father because his kid turned out gay, but he actually failed as a father because he rejected his gay kid. Yep. That's where the real failure was. Yeah. So we're going to pray for him. Yeah. Pray for him. We're better than this, saints. Like, yeah. This is, why, this is why we talk about this stuff is simply because we are better than this and we should be better than this. Like, what hurts me most is when I see these kinds of behaviors and see these kind of rhetoric by people of our own faith. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like I was really discouraged and this was kind of a turning point for me, but like 2012 back when Trayvon Martin was killed, like that was a turning point for me in my advocacy and also in how I viewed, how I viewed members of the church who didn't value black life. Like a lot of people, this was in the age of social media that this happened by the way, but you know, it it really bothered me how many people I saw applauding George Zimmerman in the church. It really what? Yeah, applauding George mm. Zimmerman or at least coming to his defense, like that really Ooh. bothered me. I I shouldn't say that I was shocked by it. I certainly discovered that I certainly knew that there would be white people out there defending George Zimmerman, but Ooh. the length to which people were willing to like break their backs to defend in front of you. Li- well, not necessarily in front of me, but on social media. You know, mm. these are like friends I had on social media, people that I've uh, served missions with, you know what I'm saying? That were justifying this very avoidable tragedy that happened to Trayvon Martin. 
And that changed a lot of things for me. And this wouldn't be the last time I saw that either. I saw it again with Mike Brown. I saw it again with uh, Sandra Bland, Centoya Brown, saw it with uh, Tatiana Jefferson even, like the most you know recent one. I saw this with many, many different uh, slain black folks. And um, I just want us to be better than all of that because the whole point of Black Lives Matter is to draw attention to our lack of care for black humanity or lack of attention to black yeah. humanity. And um, that shouldn't be something that we worry about in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, especially especially when we have a history of experiencing racialized violence ourselves. Right. We should yeah. have more compassion toward those individuals and to those who are closest to this pain. That's all. Yeah, that's uh, that's some some really serious stuff that we're gonna leave people with uh, until next time. Anyway, um, on to some housekeeping, Derek. Uh, where can people find us? Well, you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can share us with your friends, share us uh, with your enemies too. We're <laughs> you know, supposed to love your enemies. Yes. Um, yeah, share us with with those who. Uh, who can uh, benefit from this. And also, send us any questions or comments you have. We'd love to get feedback from you. That really folds in and helps us more tightly narrow exactly what we're doing so that it really helps people. Definitely, definitely. Thank you for that, Derek. You guys have a great week. We will talk to you next Saturday or Sunday. (laughs) See you later. Bye.